Hello and welcome back to our podcast. We're very glad that you have chosen to join us. We're continuing our discussion on Deuteronomy. Ken is enjoying himself on one of Tasmania's excellent bushwalks this weekend. And uh, those of us who, who aren't out enjoying Tasmania's wonderful wilderness will have to think wistful thoughts. Uh, but at least we have the book of Deuteronomy and some interesting topics to console ourselves with. Yeah, and I'm Lachlan, and uh, this evening Luke can't join us either, so it's going to be the Cameron and Lachlan show for this episode. Yeah, well, we'll see if we can keep things rolling. Fortunately, we've got a lot to cover. Uh, the lesson, as with previous weeks, has, has drawn on Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30. We've discussed Deuteronomy 4, we'll discuss Deuteronomy 30 a little later, and uh, we we have this one episode in which to fill in some of the last sort of remaining gaps and some of the chapters not discussed by the SDA quarterly. And uh, it won't be perhaps the most unified, thematically speaking, uh, discussion, simply because the book itself is a bit less unified at, at this point. It jumps around a little bit. But we thought we'd pick up a little bit after where we were uh, last week, last week when we were talking about some of the various rules around warfare, there follows some rules about sexual immorality, and leading on from that is a really interesting passage uh, with a nice sort of uh, New Testament modification. We might we might add to uh, to this story. So uh, it's not a story; it's a rule. It's the first verse of chapter twenty-three. Right, Deuteronomy twenty-three. I have that here in front of me. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. That's pretty clear. That's unambiguous, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, it continues, and we're going to pick up on verse 2 through to verse 7 soon. But, Locke, I know that this is one of the stories in the New Testament. There's a story in the New Testament that that, uh, develops this perhaps a little further. Yeah, well... You've got to remember that these some of these verses are not quite so well known to us, um, and and yet they were well known. That they are even today better known in some of the Jewish community than in our Christian communities. I'm convinced of that. The other thing in Locke is that uh, we're not in the habit of castrating people, which if you if you are a warlike nation heading around the place, it's quite possible that Daniel and his friends were eunuchs. Yes, I've heard uh, that. I remember being really startled when I first heard that um, asserted and then realized, hang on, you know, advisors to kings, um, I mean, incredibly normal in, in these ancient societies. I'd also imagine that uh, even if we are unaware of the laws and the people in the Old Testament were perhaps a little more aware of the laws, those living at that time who were eunuchs would have been... Very much aware. Very much aware. Yeah. Um, and that's the obviously the story in Acts 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is, is the one that comes to mind here. Um, I think we are more familiar with the story in Acts than we are with this law in Deuteronomy, to be honest. So when, when Philip in the book of Acts, um, the, the apostle Philip is, is a, um, told to get up and go towards the road in the wilderness, uh, and he goes and he meets an Ethiopian a court official from the of of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury, and this man is a eunuch. But he worships the God of Israel. He he worships the God. Of, not only does he worship, he's gone to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem the God of Israel. 
Presumably, though, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. Well, this is the thing. He wouldn't have been. And it's entirely possible because he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah, actually, and we looked at this when we looked in, in one of the chapters of Isaiah, um, maybe Isaiah 53, although I'm not sure I've got that right from memory. There's a passage there, a beautiful passage, that talks about even the eunuchs being included in the people of God and being given a name. And of course, one of the problems with being a eunuch and not being able to have children is that children in this this society especially, children is the way that your name lingers. And so the eunuchs being told in Isaiah that they will be given by God a name um, that that lasts, you know, this is this is speaking very, very directly to some of the ways in which they were cut off from their society, if you can pardon the pun. So Mm. I find it really remarkable in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that the phrasing is so loaded. Because when when Philip has explained to this man, um, and I'm picking it up here in Acts chapter 8, verse uh, 35, Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? <laughs> mm. It's a it's a loaded question, isn't it? Because um, we know exactly what's to prevent him from being allowed to join the assembly of the people of God. He's a mm. eunuch. It's made that very clear. And it's remarkable, isn't it, that there's no... Philip doesn't um and ah... He doesn't try and weasel out. He doesn't, you know, provide a, a robust and resounding Bible study calling on the eunuch to change his ways. Um, it just says not that not that much substantive change was possible. <laughs> no, I I said that in jest, only acknowledging that there are still people in our society today, whom some people admonished should change their ways, who are probably as incapable of doing so as a eunuch is of changing that status. Um, But in the book of Acts, there's there's no waiting. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. There is no verbal response of Philip recorded in the story, and I actually think that that is significant. I think it's telling us something. There is no answer. Um, Which is so remarkable, because we just read, you know, your comment was, it's pretty unambiguous. Um, So... There's a number of things to do with this. And I think actually continuing on in Deuteronomy 23, we should find a couple of others. Um, But I I think that there's something reasonably general here for us to take away as a a little bit of an idea and a little bit of a caution. Maybe let's explore one or two others and then um, we'll see if they substantiate my hypothesis. We'll we'll put some themes together at the end, Locke. Uh, I did find that verse in Isaiah. It was Isaiah 56. Ah. And... It refers not only to to eunuchs but to foreigners, and this this man is both. So let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, "The Lord will surely separate me from his people." Yeah. Let not the eunuch say, "Behold, I am a dry tree." See, I just can't help but imagine. For me, it's vivid. I just can't help but imagine that this poor eunuch has has in some way encountered the God of the Hebrews. He's traveled to Jerusalem to worship with them. He has found himself immensely frustrated because at every turn he's been withheld and prevented from joining in. The The whole reason he went to Jerusalem has been thwarted. And here he is staring at Isaiah on, on the road back. 
And the reason he said, this is my imagination. This is me fleshing out the story and I, I, I'm just speculating. The reason he says to Philip, help me read this, I can't understand it, is because he thought he understood it. He, he's read Isaiah. God will, will, you know, the foreigner and the eunuch will have a place and a name. And he's been to Jerusalem and he's found neither. And he's been really kept on the outside. And, and if that is even in some way the backdrop of this story, then isn't it even more remarkable that the, the apostle of Jesus has no verbal objection recorded to a loaded question saying, what, what prevents me being baptized? You know, everyone knows what prevents me. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, an, a low order question. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I think that there's, there is something really amazing and really profound going on there. It's one of my favorite stories um, in the book of Acts, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Well, Deuteronomy 23, we certainly, so far we've only got to verse one and we've already found that verse one undergoes perhaps some modification uh, within within the development of scripture uh, I still I still don't know I don't know if Philip would have insisted on taking the eunuch to the temple probably not hmm so it's not a complete annihilation of this rule is the rule may stand but but both Philip and the eunuch see the rule and indeed the temple as being much more peripheral hmm. to God's interactions with his people than was thought, you know, certainly definitely in Old Testament times and and certainly pre-Christ. So there's some shifting of emphasis that goes on. Things don't become any easier though in verse 2. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. And then there's two nations singled out in particular. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Hmm. even down to the 10th generation. Uh, the reason why I wanted to pull this out is uh, I think it's worth noting that uh, under these rules, King David and King Solomon, who built the temple, wasn't allowed in it. Ah. Because Ruth, and, and the story of Ruth, I'm sure that there were many upright and God-fearing people through whom God worked in amazing ways, and who deserved, you know, an account recorded of them whose whose accounts were not recorded. One one can only suppose that the narrative of Ruth survives because she was the mother of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. So uh, David descends from a a uh, what's the phrasing here? A forbidden marriage. Mm. They were they were forbidden from intermarrying with the Moabites. Yeah. Well, that, that actually serves to even further strengthen the, the hypothesis that is building in my mind. But if we can stretch the suspense just a little further, um, where, does, where does this passage... Because in my, in my um, Bible in front of me, the, the first eight verses of Deuteronomy 23 are titled, Those Excluded from the Assembly. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the list of those on the out. Uh, so then after yeah. the Moabites... And the Ammonites, um, it gives a reason, by the way, in verse 4, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt. Yeah. And because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor. This this Balaam character yeah. keeps coming up. They, it's a bit of a sore spot. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's interesting. We often treat that story with, um, I think, more humor. 
because of the talking donkey and Balaam coming off looking such an idiot yeah. next to his donkey who who looks totally sensible. Um, yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of other elements, though. Like the Israelites are not undone by any supernatural curse. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a much more prosaic means well, uh, there's, <laughs> of, uh, of luring them away from God. Well, it's so. funny here, even, in the, even as that story is so, so um, succinctly abbreviated here in Deuteronomy 23, um, and, and because they hired against you Balaam, son of Peor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, in brackets, Yet the Lord your God refused to heed Balaam. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So it's kind of saying, don't do this because they were really bad. They even hired this guy Balaam. Oh, by the way, except that that didn't do anything. You don't have to be worried about Balaam because God turned his curse into a blessing. (laughs) Mm. Um, So that's great. Then you shall never promote their warfare or their prosperity as long as you live. Verse seven: You shall not abhor any of the Edomites, for they are in your they are your kin. You shall not abhor any of the Egyptians, because you were an alien residing in their land. I find that one really interesting. Why are the mm. Egyptians somehow better off in this account than the than the Moabites? Moabites. The Egyptians were the slavey the slave holding oppressive regime from yeah. which the Exodus was necessary. It's interesting. Yeah, well, that that deserves a bit of exploration, like. Uh, but it is very clear with the depth that goes into that the Moabites were forbidden. Mm. It's also very clear just before we leave the story of Ruth. And the story of Ruth is is well within ten generations. Mm. Mm. Uh, so it's within only a few generations after this is recorded. Uh, so this is not some future, you know, long event. The, the people in the village, when... Uh, Ruth and uh, Boaz get married are very enthusiastic in their welcome. Mm. And they welcome her using very idiomatically Jewish think we are all witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So it's very, it's very mainstream of the mainstream, mm. you know, yeah, you know, blessings that are given here. There, there's there is definitely a sort of contrast that's happening here. Made all the more um, interesting, isn't it, that the Edomites are referred to differently to the Moabites. So this is not a broad brush mm. legislation. This is a fine detail. Yeah. If if it was a vague sort of Oh, the people around you, don't let them enter the temple of God, you know, within reason. Then you would say, oh, well, obviously the story of Ruth makes sense and the, you know, mm. the story of the Ethiopian Union. But the law is quite particular and, yeah. and quite unambiguous. And the the fact it's particular is is shown by the, by the different treatment given to the Edomites and the Egyptians. Mm. Well, the Egyptians are interesting. The, you've already highlighted the ten generations that have been mentioned up uh, in verse two and in verse three about the um, the illicit union or the what was it called in your translation the forbidden marriage forbidden marriage yeah that's ten generations but down in verse eight the the Egyptians the children of the third generation that are born to them may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord 
Yeah, and there were there were earlier in Deuteronomy we we talked about the great multitude, which presumably included some the mixed multitude, mm. which would have included some Egyptians that left Egypt with with the Israelites. Yeah, uh, it's interesting uh, the comparison too between the Egyptians and the Moabites that you're drawing out. Like I think I think perhaps the Israelites were taught, told to be gracious to the Egyptians because there would be an inevitable tendency to be cruel to the Egyptians. Mm. So, so what we see here is a, is a deliberate... Um, what's it called when you discriminate on purpose to reset cultural trends? Positive uh, discrimination? Is that yeah. the... I think it could be called that, yeah. Um, no, it's like, it's like when I finished my PhD, there were twice as many jobs available for women as for men. Mm, and mm. there's a good reason for that, and I support it, and that's because... the maths has been yeah too male centric yeah. for too long and you need to reset the culture so um is it positive discrimination i think it is um i don't think this is the phrase but i often think of it as conscious bias deliberately yeah. designed to try and reprogram unconscious bias um yeah so maybe that's what's happening here maybe they've got they've got a sort of inherent bias against the egyptians and god's yeah. saying all right well you not to treat them too too harshly there's another element that's just occurring to me now uh could take some contemplation for the listeners remember back at the start of this journey through deuteronomy we actually explored the event of the exodus and we in particular pondered your question why did god have to send the 10 plagues Mm. i wonder whether i wonder whether there's any element here in which god in which the, the the attitude is the Egyptians, to whatever extent they deserved some negative repercussions, they've had them. That's done. It's all closed. It's all finished. So there's yeah. there's no there's no grudges to be held now. Um, you know that that's all done. That's behind. That was up to God, and that was sort of justice administered, or whatever. You know, however you want to yeah. phrase it. And and so from here on, you shall not abhor any of the Egyptians. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. Well, let's continue on because the the lesson has I think we've mentioned a, a sort of predisposition for for just jumping straight to Deuteronomy thirty uh, and and skipping some of the stuff in between and there's there's a fair bit of miscellaneous laws in between so look let's let's flick through and this is not going to be a representative uh, survey and we'll do I'll pick, I'll, I'll pick some and you can pick some. Mm. Ranging from the uh, ones we definitely agree with to the ones that are a bit troubling. How about this? Uh, designate a place outside of the camp. This is in chapter 23, where you can go to the toilet. Ah, well. As part of your equipment, you must have something to dig with. And when you have done a poo, you should dig a hole and cover it up. Well, I think anyone who's been a pathfinder, um, who's been camping and hiking in the outdoors, knows of the sensible sanitation aspect of that law. And in fact, I'm reminded of... Um, when we first moved out to a block of land um, when we were young and and mm. before when we first moved there, a lot of the regular amenities were not yet connected up. And for at least a number of weeks, it was necessary for us to pick a place outside the camp <laughs> to go in the That's bush right. for the toilet. Um, I, I, right. am, I am pretty willing at this point in time to completely endorse that law from Deuteronomy, Cam. I think it makes sense. Yeah, me too. Uh, what about this? Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may an interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. Yeah. This one is way less clear-cut to me because of the incredibly obvious potential for exploitation. 
Um, and I, you know, I always, I, I just wonder, even in the Christian era, we're told to turn the other cheek. Does that mean that we're, we're just expected to stay there, keep getting slapped? You know, at what point is it appropriate yeah. to be a little bit more um, assertive than, than just lying there getting kicked? And I, it's not what this is talking about. This is talking about interest. But, but surely, um, I mean, here's what I would do. I would come to you and I would borrow something from you and then I would loan it to, a, to an Egyptian at a charge interest and then after a year i'd i'd repay the debt back to you but i'd be able to pocket well, the interest that's exactly right Lock. <laughs> there's a couple of things that are worth noting here one of these is that um on the basis of texts such as this uh christians did not participate in money lending and if you if you lived all through the middle ages and up until about 100 years ago um the money lenders was synonymous for the, was a was a term for the Jews mm. because the Jews could lend money to the Christians and that that meant of course that the no one enjoys paying off a mortgage no yeah. one enjoys you know, yeah. and 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 a a significant amount of ill feeling towards Jews he was in the grip of the Jews meant he was going broke and had to borrow money to cover his <laughs> to cover his expenses. One can only suppose that this had a fairly, um, it probably wasn't the only factor, but a sizable impact on attitudes of anti-Semitism mm. within Europe. Mm. If the people who all hold the, the, you know, yeah, the people to whom you are indebted are always the Jews, that that didn't end up playing so well in their favour. Uh, the other factor is, though, of course, that. Uh, a limitation on how much exploitation can happen through the process of lending is, I think, a very good thing. Mm. Uh, now, um, to give some examples, I'd, I don't use Afterpay. Have you ever used Afterpay? I've used it twice on two separate occasions. Um, neither of them did I particularly need it for any reason, but I was just interested and thought, oh, well, if I can spread that payment out over yeah. two months, I'll give it a try. Do you pay any extra on Afterpay? Normally not, no. And right. and the mechanics behind this, I don't know well, but I did watch a video on YouTube once because I was genuinely interested about this. Yeah. Um, essentially, Afterpay is providing a service to the retailer by basically saying you can, you can get a customer now even though they can't pay now. Afterpay says, we'll pay you straight away. So the retailer gets what looks like a pay-the-same-day transaction. Afterpay shoulders a bit of that um, risk, but I think takes a, a cut of the profit or a cut of the, like a, a commission on it. And the, yeah. the retailer says, yeah, that's worth it to us because it was a sale we weren't going to get and we get to make it as a same day sale. We, we'll, we'll take a 5% hit or whatever it is, a certain percent hit. Yeah. What it means is it's a loan being paid by the business owner. Yeah. And in a bizarre sense, it kind of means that it's a loan being paid by all of the customers who don't use Afterpay. Because um, if you're, a, again, if you're a savvy business owner, maybe what you just do is you just put your price up by, you say, oh, everyone's going to use Afterpay, so I'm just going to put the price up by whatever it is, 2% or something. Um, hmm. So it's a, it's a kind of a curly one. The thing is, though, Luck, that if you um, if you say they get a cut of the profits, this is where it goes. So they get, suppose they get 10% of the profits, hmm. but it's over a process of four weeks. So times that by 13 to get it into a year, and it's 130% of the profits. Were, were it calculated as an annual interest rate, mm, mm. 
uh, I guess it depends partly on on what the profit margin is. But if it was calculated as a loan with an annual interest rate, a lot of these schemes end up being exorbitant. Yes. Yeah. No, you're exactly and, right. And uh, things like uh, the 24 months interest free. The, the way interest is, is is piled on the minute the 24 months is done. Yeah. Uh, even even non-tricky things. I, I teach finance to my students. Most people have a sort of rough idea of how simple interest works. If you borrow twice as much, you pay twice as much interest. It takes you twice as long to pay it off or whatever. You know, there's a nice linear sort of nature. Mm. I, I can regularly bamboozle my students with compound interest because it's quite complicated and... Um, and Banks make a ton. Oh, you know, money lending makes makes a ton, and and this can be good, and it can be when when the terms are outlined clearly and everything else. That's all very well and good. When I mean, when it's done badly, and there is a, such a thing as predatory lending, mm. getting people stuck in cycles of debt, and this is big in the US, and I think I've talked about it previously on on one of our podcast episodes. But but the way you handle money and the power it gives you over other people has has huge um impact on society like mm. it's a very significant thing that's a and and Christ Christ says more about how we ought to use our money than he does about how we should pray <laughs> that's an interesting one yeah so i don't think laws like this one are peripheral i think that they're quite central and we should think really carefully about responsible ways of using our money mm. and if we are in the position of running a business or doing things thinking of ways to treat customers fairly uh to not try and get in positions of power over them. Mm. And certainly money lending is, is an example of, of a place where people often do effectively yeah. seek to own other people. I mean, that's more or less what it comes down to mm. if you get them stuck in a, a cycle of debt. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very, it's very interesting. I still think that the taken at, taken at face value and admonition not to charge interest um, is is just economically untenable whether it ever was i'm not sure because i'm not a historian of this sort of thing but how about this same same theme luck uh sorry when you're making a loan of any kind to your neighbor don't go into his house so presumably this is to a foreigner if you're not meant oh no you're allowed to loan to your neighbor but you're not allowed to just charge interest that's right yeah so if if you loan to your neighbor and he gives you a pledge um if the man is poor and he say brings out his cloak for you I'm reading in verse 12 of chapter 24. Uh, if he's given you a cloak as a pledge that he'll repay the loan, return his cloak to him by sunset so he can sleep in it. <laughs> then he will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Uh, pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Yeah. This is very top, topical at the moment, Locke, because we just discovered that my wife's not been paid for a third of her work since April. Uh-huh. <laughs> but her, her, she's done so many different jobs within the school, filling in for people on long service leave and then filling in for someone else and then changing, and it's taken us this long to work out that something was wrong. And we've just been back, back paid, so... Yeah, that well, it's good to hear you being back, but I know that earlier this year or late last year, the University of Newcastle had an issue where they realised a, a an accounting error, a calculation error, and they had to um, they had to just own it if they'd overpaid people, because they couldn't ask them to pay it back, 
but they had to yeah. they had to back pay and correct anyone who they'd underpaid. And because it's yeah. a large organization and there was you know only a small percentage of errors, but it added up. It was a substantial amount of money um, that had yeah. to be had to be allocated. Okay, yeah. what about this? When when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave for what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest your grapes in your vineyard, don't go over them again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. All right, I'm glad you Remember, mentioned... Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I'm glad that you brought that up is... what? What's this? A chapter on from that one about the Moabites being excluded yeah. from the assembly? Because in the book of Ruth... This this does feature really probably as part of the mm. plot sequence, right? The reason mm. that Ruth can go and glean is because Boaz is an upright, law-abiding citizen who is leaving, is doing the first pass and leaving the second pass mm. for the poor and the alien in the midst. So, it's even more striking then, isn't it, to find to find Ruth marrying Boaz and the whole thing happening there at the end of the story. It's really pulling a very surprising twist. Mm. I w- you jumped past one. You jumped past one, Cam, talking about loaning to people. I was going to ask your opinion on Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. No one shall ah. take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Have you ever, when you've been loaning someone something, have you ever taken an upper millstone as a pledge? I hope not. I haven't. I haven't. So at least I, I can claim very, very honestly to have kept this rule i can i can yeah. take this one off um, i haven't been in a position to take pledges much at all uh, okay. a, again it's a message against exploitation yeah it is and i'm laughing as if i think that it's a bit silly i think that the point that's being made here is actually extremely um pertinent the the flippancy with which human life and human dignity can be just disregarded in its significance by converting it in some way to some sort of economic transaction you know the the yeah. the, the the sort of so so often referred to you know the, the sort of sweatshops making t-shirts in bangladesh or whatever and then we just say oh yeah but i'd rather buy the cheaper shirt and what i'm commenting yeah. on here is the tendency that once it's been turned into just what feels like an economics kind of argument it suddenly rationalizes all sorts of behavior that that's actually pretty abhorrent single-use plastic yeah, and, As and an, this, another example. This verse seems to be saying, because it says, um, no one shall take a, a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Presumably that's because the livelihood of the person is connected to the operation of the mill. Um, yeah. I'm speculating that's what I'm interpreting it to be. Um, so what it's actually saying is that a respect for for human life and human dignity has to actually inform the way that you construct your economic systems as well. Um, I don't believe, mm. I, I think I'm stretching it a little bit, but I don't believe I'm stretching the intent of some of those verses all that much. Uh, that's what I no. That's what I hear them saying. I think you're right, Lot. And I think that that is an area today, uh, I mean, that's a very relevant message for us today. Mm. The phrase, but it's good for the economy, Yeah, is a phrase that's that's used fairly often. And Lunig does a lot of cartoons about this, the Australian cartoonist, including one with this big hairy monster-looking thing, which is the economy. And the economy is <laughs> telling everyone what to do. The economy is saying, build a car park, you know, on the kids' playground, and um, you know, an industrial centre here next to the beach, and um, you know, <laughs> put high-rise buildings here that block all the view. And the economy is telling them all what to do, and they they all have to do it. Mm. 
we do have to be a little little careful. An extreme example of that, Locke, it comes to my mind because we were talking about anti-Semitism. Uh, Hitler was very good for the economy. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's helpful for us all to remember that that doesn't mean the economy has to be bad, but it certainly means we have to be in charge of it. And, and there's the way we... Economies operate according to the rules that the societies make for them. Um, yeah. So yeah. you could imagine an economy that said, yeah, just take whatever you like if it looks good. You could imagine an economy being like that, except that we don't have very many like that because human societies have kind of worked out that's not that doesn't work well in the long term. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we are in charge of it. Look, I'd, I'd like to speculate in, in anticipation. My hypothesis on some of these chapters is that we need to be cautious as we're reading them not to just assume that they're all as hard and fast and black and white as they often appear. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's certainly borne out by the, the way in which, uh, you know, the people find some sort of flexible expression of the rules. Mm. And and there are, I mean, when you, when you get to the story of Ruth, there are instructions to be kind to the fatherless and the widow, to be to care for the alien within your gates. Mm. There, there are those big overriding principles, and the the, the issue of the Moabites is a um, small amendment that's a particular case. It's not the broad principle. The broad mm. principle, overwhelmingly, is is to care and be kind to the uh, to the people who can't are not in a position to to look after the themselves. So. Uh, I think that the what happens in the Book of Ruth is wonderful, and it, and it is, you know, it's one of the best books of the Bible. There's not many books of the Bible that you read it and you say, "Ah, oh, isn't that, isn't that nice?" Um, it just turns out well, including mm. Locke, including Locke. One passage which we also skipped over, and I wasn't going to come back to it, but I will now. There's another reference in Deuteronomy 25 to something that takes place in the Book of Ruth, and again in the Book of Ruth, it doesn't happen. The way it's it's meant to say, supposing that um, someone dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. I'm reading from twenty five verse five. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfil the duty of her brother in law, and the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the of the man who died, mm. so that his name won't be blotted out from amongst Israel. And this is of course the kinsman redeemer that that uh, Boaz becomes. Mm. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town at the gate and say, so the, uh, this is if the kinsman redeemer doesn't want to redeem. Of course, that's what happens in the book of Ruth too because there's there's one who's who's closer to uh, Naomi, Naomi's family. And, and what's Naomi's husband's name? I've forgotten. Uh, Abimelech? No. Abimelech sounds familiar. Uh, there's someone who's closer than Boaz. So if someone, if, if the kinsman redeemer doesn't want to redeem, then the lady can go to the elders of the town. And what are the elders of the town uh, to do? Verse 8. The elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. <laughs> that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. The sandal thing 
Doesn't the sandal thing actually feature in the legal it like does. In the discussions with the elders but with Boaz? The man the... takes off his own sandal and gives it to Boaz. <laughs> exactly. But no one spits in anyone's face. No. It's it's a violation, Locke, of the clear instruction of scripture here, which instructs that that Ruth or Naomi should have gone with Boaz to the city gates mm. and taken the man's sandal off and spat in his face. Right. And said that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the whole book of Ruth is full of people who, who are not really following the letter of the law, but they're just being very nice. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, but this, so the letter of the law, this whole idea, so Deuteronomy, especially in these chapters, um, you do get the feeling, like you said at the start, that it's a bit scattershot almost you know there's a law about this there's a law about that i notice at the start of verse of chapter 25 there's some laws about um legal disputes and litigation but that that was already touched on slightly in chapter 21 um or or chapter 20 so there's there's a certain validity in our assessment of it being just slightly disjointed and you know things like the 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 one that I pulled out about the upper millstone, um, certainly seem uh, out of place in their specificity, I, I guess. That's what makes it feel a little bit funny. But you're, I was going to, you know, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch says a lot changes in the light of Christ. So I think that's one message that we do need to remember when we're, when we're wanting to be honest Christians grappling with some of... Because like we discussed in last week's episode... There's some parts here in Deuteronomy that are just frankly um, disconcerting, you know, unsettling. Deuteronomy 27, Locke. I, I think that this is a part of worship services that we're missing out. Uh, the Levites shall say to all the people, cursed is the man who, and there's a list of, okay. uh, so cursed is the man who carves an image or a cast idol. And all the people will say, Amen. <laughs> and then the Levite will say, cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Well, <laughs> and then there's about twenty of them. I've uh, here's my proposal. Why don't we look at the curses uh, for next week's episode? And if any of the listeners have their favourite Deuteronomy curse that they'd like to write in for us to specifically mm. draw attention to, um, we should do that. Yeah, I wonder is the one I haven't looked in here, but is the is the curse just the one who hangs on a tree, which is mm. applied to Christ? Let me let me look at that lot because this might be. I think it is, and I think it's in an earlier chapter that we dealt with previously, as an example of a text that gains new meaning in the light of Christ. Right, yeah, because that's one step further. That's not just that a law gets annulled. It's that it gets inverted. Yeah. A man's body shall not remain all night on the tree if you've killed him by hanging on a tree, but you shall bury him. This is in Deuteronomy 21. You shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Hmm. That is thought-provoking. It's not just the New Testament. So I think in in many ways the New Testament presents us with some of the most um, substantial uh, reimaginings or invertings or or reintentionings of some of these um, passages like we're reading in Deuteronomy. But you've pointed out even within a few generations stories like that in the book of Ruth and of King David and of numerous others in throughout the Old Testament. I think point out to us that if we are reading Deuteronomy with a mindset of the Bible says it, 
that's all there is to it. I believe it done. Um, then, then I think we're not even being as honestly grappling with the text as its initial audience in the, in the time of Deuteronomy in the old Testament. Um, yeah. So, so I certainly, I find that challenging because if you're going to start admitting, well, some of this it's has a, changed. How do I know which slope, bits? Isn't it? Well, it's a very slippery slope. Yeah, it deserves to be at a playground, I think, with kids sliding down it. Um, yeah. But I think it's unavoidable because it seems to me that the Bible itself is is sliding on the same slope. And I think, um, you know, this is where much, much bigger pictures. If, if there's validity in saying that the book of Deuteronomy is in the Bible because it was inspired, if we if we believe in the Holy Spirit's role in inspiration, then I think it's a natural and obvious connection to that idea to say, and the Holy Spirit's presence in the communities who read and interpret it even today, that that is continuing the act of inspiration. If God was present at the authorship, why can't God be present at the reading uh, event as well? And and yeah. um, so well, to me, I I feel like it's a call and and doing it alone is i think more risky than it needs to be doing reading the bible in community is where i think you've got the best chances of remaining sensible and honest as you grapple with some of these things that frankly are pretty weird and at times uncomfortable yeah well our community at least for the in the in the context of this podcast are our wonderful listeners and they they are more than welcome to keep us honest and uh, and to correct us or to, to give us any any views that they have. Uh, I think we mentioned last week how much we were enjoying the Book of Deuteronomy. It's uh, certainly, I found it much more enjoyable discussing it with you, Lachlan, with Ken and Luke when they're here than reading it on my own. Mm. And I think you're right. I think I think that we ought not be surprised if, if reading the Bible is difficult. And I... I think that there are some tendencies that sometimes express themselves in our church where people are not only surprised but put out or offended that that anyone would find the Bible anything other than perfectly clear. Mm. And and I I think that God invites us always to be growing and, and as a denomination we uphold the idea of present truth. So this ought not be present truth infers the truth for this present, but this present's a different present to that present. Uh so uh, that's, that's I guess, the, the essential idea we're looking at. Uh, those wishing to send us a comment uh, can use the email address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, if you think you know anyone who would enjoy listening, please pass the link on to them. And uh, please join us again next week. We are nearing the point where we will uh, resume the SDA quarterly. We're almost up to Deuteronomy 30. And um, then we'll track along with the, the quarter from, from there to the end of the book.